In the old days, they'd be running for the doors when I got up to the pulpit. But now you're staying, so thank you very much. Uh, wh wh where to begin, right? Well, be let's begin where we are. Be here now. Whenever I, there are moments of uh, doubt, whenever I feel moments of doubt about my ministry, all I have to do is remember, think about, remember, and think about um, the ministry of Vanessa Rose and Jennifer Campbell, and I say, damn, I did a good job. Pretty sweet, pretty sweet, pretty sweet. The, one of the greatest joys for me today is, uh, uh, miss so many, but to be leading worship uh, with Vanessa again. Uh, I am with you every Sunday. I'm not, I guess, it, I guess you'd call it lurking, I'm not sure, but you know, I'm, I'm lo looking at you through the lens over there, and uh, it's incredible what's happening here. It's remarkable, it d d makes my heart sing. Uh, there's nothing better than uh, to see your successor outstrip your own achievements and go farther than I ever thought of going. It makes me so, here I'm over a clump again. <laughs> Enough. So, here we are, the gospel. Today is uh, the reign of Christ. It's the last Sunday of the church year. Next Sunday is the first Sunday of Advent. So today, the church historically recognizes, celebrates, rests in the reign of Christ, the supremacy of Christ, the headship of Christ. This is Paul's term. Uh, Paul talked about Christ as the head. We are the body, the assembly, the ecclesia. The assembly is the body. Christ is the head. But not just of the body, but of, of the cosmos, of the creation. Listen, the universe is 13 billion 800 million years old. I'm not sure what that means, but it's a big number. And here we are. But we're part of that almost 14 billion. We're on our way to 14 billion. Only 200 million more and we'll be there. We're part of that. We're made up of the atoms they were at the beginning when the cosmos went <laughs> and now we're gathered the hour, we're gathered up in the atoms that make us up in this building and all the rest of it we're part of this ongoing cosmic revolution of life and sometimes the days in which we live are so heavy and our spirits feel so burdened by the troubles of the world that it's easy for us to think that we're at the end. This is, this is it. It can't get any worse than this. It's probably going to stop tomorrow. It's probably going to come to... No! We're part of this ongoing... Have you seen the pictures from the uh, telescope, the James Webb telescope? Looking back, not just in space, but looking back in time. And we're part of this huge thing. 
and we're part of the, uh, the, the vast, huge experiment, and I think it's an experiment, which is the church, the ecclesia, the assembly, begun in the first century, Jesus and then the, the preaching of Paul. Paul was writing to a small group of people in Ephesus. Ephesus was the most important city in the eastern Mediterranean, second only to Rome. It was the epicenter of the religious life of the eastern end of the empire, the many religions and cultural phenomena and the languages. It was, it was a polyglot city. It was, it was New York City of its day. In, this, in, in the midst of this mix is this tiny little group of people who had been called together by the preaching of Paul during his sojourn in Ephesus years earlier. He was there for two years, preached in the synagogues, preached on the street corners, and Jews and Gentiles were coming together, attracted by the monotheism and the hope of this new, can't call it a religion yet, a movement within Judaism. And he writes back to them to encourage them in their faith. But remember, he's not writing to the church, right? You hear the word church, you think St. Peter's Basilica, you know, First Church, Fairfield, big pile of red sandstone in the corner. No, it's just a bunch of people sitting in one another's living rooms trying to figure it out, drawn by the good news of God's love. And so he writes to them to remind them of the, the power, the gospel power, power which expresses itself not by the exercise of might, the assertion of will, but power that exercises itself through humility, love, nonviolence, not passivity, but an active engagement in the resistance to the forces which are evil, which, that was Rome, baby. Everybody talks about the Roman Empire. Oh, the Roman Empire. If you, you, you did not want to live in the Roman Empire, I can tell you, unless you were a citizen, a member of the elite. You were ground to the dust. The emperor had his knee on your neck. The emperor, by the time Paul is writing, is not just the emperor of the empire. He's a god. He's kurios, the Greek word lord, he is the Lord. Everything is under the emperor. And along comes this ragtag band of Jews and Gentiles who say, uh, no, no, actually, um, it's not Caesar. It's this fellow from Nazareth. His name was Jesus. Who's that? Oh, you know, he's the itinerant preacher, carpenter, who was crucified outside the walls of Jerusalem. He, he's the curios. Everybody goes, <laughs> that is funny. This person is greater than the emperor. And Paul and the early Christians say, mm, yeah. So what Paul is preaching is countercultural. Never forget that the word that the synagogue has to preach to the world, the ethical monotheism of Judaism, the word that the church has to preach to the world, the ethical monotheism of Christianity, 
is countercultural. We are swimming against the tide. So Rome or uh, rapacious capitalism or uh, the violence, which is so much a part of our life today, the ethical monotheism of our faith is offering an alternative vision, understanding of life, which seeks to change the world not by overturning through violent means, but through nonviolent resistance to evil, the forces that oppress you and me and the peoples of the world. So, the letter to the Ephesians, he wants to remind them of the gospel story and then the power of the gospel story for these early Christians for their story, their, their living. How did they live? Now, Paul is a mystic. And sometimes he gets going down these uh, phrases and about halfway through you're going like, what? What? Matthew Perry, right? who just died, but we'll talk about Matthew Perry in a little bit. One of the funniest things that Matthew Perry ever did was after a long soliloquy by a person near the close of an episode of Friends, heartfelt, heart-rending monologue by a person. At the end, Matthew Perry goes, what? <laughs> it's like that with Paul. You know, sometimes you go, what? So we're going to take our time. He writes, hearing as I do about your faithfulness in the Lord Jesus that is among you, and all the love for all the holy ones, I do not cease giving thanks on your behalf. Remembering, he says, knowing everything, I do not cease giving thanks. Making a remembrance in my prayers so that the God of our Lord Jesus, the Anointed One, the Father of glory might give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation of the full knowledge of him that the eyes of your heart being illumined, you may know the hope of his call that is with us, the riches of his glories, of his inheritance. The eyes of your hearts being illumined. It's an invitation from Paul, not just to know about Jesus, the gospel, the resurrection, but to personally experience, to be transformed, to be touched by that power, that presence, that godly purpose. Back in September, Jerry and I were reading the New York Times. This is one of the best parts about retirement. Well, first of all, the best part about the, here's the best thing about retirement, if you're me. It's hanging out with Jerry. <laughs> it really is. You know, years ago, uh, neighbors, Dick retired, and he was lost in his retirement. 
and he was driving Mag, his wife, crazy in his retirement. And finally, one day, she looked at me and she, says, she said, Dick, she said, I married you for better or for worse. I didn't marry you for lunch. Get the hell out of my house. <laughs> That's not our case. No, I mean, I'm just happy. We, we, we're, we're together 24-7, right? It, it, it's, <laughs> it's great. Say yes. <laughs> oh, <yeah>. Okay. <laughs> I, I have to keep prompting people. After all these years, I ask a question. I have to, have to say to them, say yes. So she reads this article in the New York Times about a social psychologist, Gordon Flett, who teaches at York University, and his specialty is mattering. Not like Einstein, E equals MC squared, you know, that matter. But you matter as a person. And the essentialness of mattering to our psychological health. Flett writes that to know that you matter is essential to our psychological health. More than belonging or self-esteem or being socially connected, Mattering matters. Yes, feeling value and adding value, these are good, but more importantly, mattering is a matter that you are missed if you are absent. You can like yourself, flat rights, you can like yourself, you can feel capable, you can be capable, but if you want to be a truly happy person, if no one notices you when you enter the room, it's not going to happen. I would say, if no one notices when, you, when you're absent from the room, you don't matter, right? It seems to me that that's what Paul is getting at here, is that you matter. I matter. You matter to God. You matter to God. Now, if you've heard me preach a couple of times, you've probably heard me make reference to my maternal grandmother, Mary Ethel Moore Wentworth. I had four grandparents, but head and shoulders above all of them was Grandma Wentworth. And I mattered to that woman. And as a little boy, when a lot of times I didn't think I mattered, I knew I mattered to Grammy. So I've learned so much about God. I tell you who I've learned about God from mostly is women, but that's another sermon. <laughs> I learned so much about God from my grandmother. And she, she noticed me, she knew me. She got me. But it's also true that very often we discover that we matter when our lives are really falling apart. Made reference a few moments ago to the 
very sad, untimely death of Matthew Perry, comedic genius and actor, but also a remarkable person in his articulation of the crisis of addiction in America and honesty and openness and humbleness and, and just wanting to help other people find sobriety in his own struggle for sobriety. And you can't go to the supermarket and not find magazine articles and covers about Matthew Perry, remarkable story. And Patty Davis, who was daughter of uh, Ronald Reagan, President Reagan, who has her own struggles with addiction, had a wonderful column, which again we read in the paper in the morning drinking our coffee in the living room on Martha's Vineyard, <laughs> in which Patty wrote, loneliness lies at the heart of addiction. The loneliness that resides deep within us, in our core, vast, shadowy, it's who we are. She goes on, and then we discover alcohol or some other drug which becomes our companion to hold our hand and prop us up to make us feel like we fit in, that we can be part of the club. That companion that's there in the empty hours when it seems that no one else is. That's an absence of mattering, right? And finding a way to fill that void. In Hank Azaria, in his own narrative of his recovery, helped along by his friend Matthew Perry, told the story of going to his first AA meeting with Matthew Perry and Azaria, timid and meek as he walked into the room. Matthew turned to him and said, it's really something, isn't it? God is a bunch of drunks together in a room. Now, I checked it out with a friend who's a member of the fellowship of Phil, and it's okay for me to say that. This gathering of people who are honest about their lives and their need and that nagging loneliness in the absence of real mattering in their lives and the discovery of the God who does know and for whom you do indeed matter very greatly in a room full of people. God is a bunch of drunks together in a room. The honesty, the openness, the vulnerability, vulnerability the candor, the humor, the kindness, the gentleness. You matter. And so Paul continues, the extravagant glory of God's power towards us, that power 
that in accord with the operation of his might, which he has enacted in the anointed, raising him from the dead. Now, power is the ability to work. Power is the ability to make things happen, to get things done. And it's the power of God that raises Jesus from the dead, right? This is his argument. It's the power of God that raises Jesus from the dead. And I want to say, well, wait a minute. Wouldn't it have been better if Jesus had reached into his robes and pulled out a lightsaber and lopped off the heads of the Romans? Now that's power that I can understand. People say, oh, we're so glad he retired. When Paul writes that the eyes of our spirits have to be illumined, what he means is we have to come to see that the power of God is not exercised in the way that you and I understand power to be exercised, through the assertion of will, force of arms, violence, getting our own way, either verbally or nonverbally. But the only way for the power of God to become evident in what's happening is that Christ has to face into the violence, the mendacity, the evil that's visited upon him by Rome, that's being visited upon people even today. And know that God will raise, Jesus will raise those who are ground into the dust will raise them from the dead. That's the kind of power that we are called to. The world is the way the world is. We can push around the edges and try to change the outer circumstances of life, but lie and large, the best, most effective way to exercise our power is to see the world as it really is and to come to terms with it so that we can interact with each other in ways that are transformative and life-giving and affirming of the fact that you matter. It's an entirely different way of seeing and of being in the world. Paul goes on, So God has ordered all things under his feet, has given him headship, the reign of Christ, over all things in the assembly. The Greek word is ekklesia, which we usually translate as church, the assembly. We're an assembly. We're not a church. This is not the church. It's a lovely pile of red sandstone and stained glass and an organ, but it ain't the church, baby. It's lovely. It's a great tool. It's a wonderful resource. 
But you are the church, the assembly. You are the church. The headship of the body, the plentitude of the one who is filling all in all, the pleroma in the Greek, the fullness of God. My cup runneth over. It's about coming fully alive to the understanding that you are made, as Carl Sagan said, of, made of star, dust, star stuff, but also that you matter to God. Paul wrote his letter to the Ephesians about 70 A.D., somewhere around in there. About 50 years later, Ignatius of Lyon, who was a bishop in Paris, he was from Turkey, also known as Irenaeus, one of the great uh, early leaders of the church, wrote, reflecting on Paul's letter to the Ephesians, the glory of God is a human being come fully alive. What? Sounds a little new agey to me. The glory of God is a human being come fully alive. To be alive consists in beholding God. That's why I think the key here is the eyes of our hearts being fully illumined. From chapter 1, verse 15. The eyes of our hearts being fully illumined to see things differently. A human being come fully alive. Most of us are actually not human beings. We're human doings. We're always doing stuff. I am doing, 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 doing. How can I justify my existence, right? Doing things. If I'm not doing something, I'm nobody. We feel like we're sharks. You know, if you stop swimming, you're going to sink and drown, right? But we are not human doings. We are human beings. Psalm 46, verse 10. Been turned on to this by Father Richard Rohr, the Franciscan priest, taking his course online on spirituality for the two halves of life. Psalm 46, verse 10. Be still and know that I am God. What? Shouldn't it say, work harder and know that I am God? Shouldn't it say, go to another workshop and read another book and know that I am God? Shouldn't it say, design a new action plan and implement a new program and know that I am God? No. Be still. Sit and know that I am God. In that moment, 
resting, breathing, to let the Spirit flow through our lives, to stop doing and just be. And in that moment, to hear the voice, you matter. <laughs>